Welcome to Not Your Average Mother Runner Podcast. My name is Lisa, and this is not just a podcast about running. This is a podcast to empower women through fitness and health and everything in between. Because let's be honest, ladies, this journey could suck if we don't get our shit together. Okay, welcome back to Not Your Average Mother Runner Podcast. My name is Lisa, and today's guest is Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick. Dr. Fedrick, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to have you here, and you know that this is a topic that's really heavy. Um, we talked a little bit about it before we did the uh, before we we committed to a recording date. But before we begin, can you just explain and and introduce yourself to the audience, um, where you are, what you do, and all that good stuff? Sure. Um, so I am a licensed professional counselor. Um, I own a practice in um, Gilbert, Arizona, a private practice, and uh, we have multiple providers there. Um, I specialize in I a lot of my the beginning of my career. I specialized in working with children and adolescents, um, and it has developed over time to working primarily with adults. Um, I do a lot of relationship work. So I would, I would say that that's my area of expertise. Um, that relationship work can be fascinating because I do, I work with a lot of couples and a lot of families, but a lot of the relationship work that I do is actually with the individual. And so, and that's a lot of what we'll get in today, but it's really exploring what did their programming look like in early childhood and how is it impacting them currently? Um, and so we'll do work on maybe if they're currently in a relationship, uh, what are consistent barriers or patterns or cycles that keep coming up? Or if they're single, what does that look like and how can we work to repair a lot of that stuff moving into the next relationship? And so that is my passion is relationships. Um, and that's a lot of the work that I do. And that's why I have you here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am. That's why I'm so excited to have you here. And for those of you who are listening and watching, um, you know, I brought her here because we, I've had a lot of women come onto this show and also reach out to me talking about their relationships and using words like narcissism and toxic relationships. And the funny thing is we... We we recently had someone on the podcast talking about uh, toxic workplaces. So now we're talking about toxic relationships. So let's get down to it. Okay, <laughs> um, let's talk about what is a toxic relationship and what's the definition of it. And does a toxic relationship necessarily mean narcissistic? Great question. Okay, so a toxic relationship is defined as um, a relationship that is characterized by patterns of behaviors on a lot of times we see maybe with one particular partner, there is um, more of these overt dysfunctional behaviors. And then so we often see that one partner maybe looks like the victim and the other looks like the one that is more um, doing engaging in the toxic behavior. But often, really, a toxic relationship is uh, characterized by patterns of behavior on both partners' parts um, of emotional, mental, psychological, sometimes physical um, behaviors that cause harm to the other. And that's a we're, we're going to dig into what that looks like with often what comes up is that we have the codependent and we have the narcissist in the relationship. And the narcissist is usually the one that gets the worst reputation in the dynamic um, because their behaviors are, are often a lot more overt and a lot more in your face. 
But the codependent is still equally responsible for their dysfunctional behaviors and how they contribute to this dynamic. Um, and it's just a lot more covert. And so it may be just more manipulation or controlling behaviors that are not as obvious. Um, but really, a toxic relationship in and of itself is defined as a pattern of behaviors um, on one or both partners end that creates this emotional, psychological or physical damage to the other. Okay. So you said codependent. Yes. Can you just explain a little bit more of what that means? Sure. So a codependent is often our societal misconception of a codependent is that they are um, often like this needy, dependent, weak-minded individual. A codependent is actually often the one who is, um, they, they're taking care of everyone else. They are the people pleaser, the perfectionist, and there's a lot of controlling behaviors that come along with codependency because they are they believe that they have the right answer and that they can dictate how things go to make sure everything is running smoothly, including for often their narcissistic partner. And so codependency often comes along with this enabling. Um, and so the codependent will often put up with a lot of behaviors that are not um, that are abusive or that are dysfunctional um, and, and often justifying it as um, whatever it is that they justify it as to make these uh, the rationale for them staying in the dynamic. And so often, um, often the codependent will put their needs aside. They will not make themselves a priority. Um, they will make everyone around them a priority. But the catch with that is that there's often resentment that then comes along with that because the codependent wants to tell you how much they put their needs and wants aside to take care of everyone else. Um, and so I like to clear that up because there is a difference um, between a love addict and a codependent. And the love addict is often the one that is maybe the more dependent um a love addict might be a symptom of codependency, but is not is not codependency. And um, those get confused where the codependent is actually much more of a strong, assertive individual who um, takes care of everyone, but uh, will let a lot slide. Okay. So I you're talking and I'm gathering that in my mind, you're almost saying, I mean, I could be wrong. But when we think about toxic relationships, are we saying that the, the two parties are, I don't want to say at fault, but it involves the two parties to create this relationship? You're absolutely right. So it is it is the dance of dysfunction and it involves. And so that's when I was explaining a toxic relationship. It is so easy. So I guess even to, to your earlier question of, does just because it's a toxic relationship, does it involve a narcissist? No, that's not necessarily true. But furthermore, just because it's a toxic relationship doesn't mean it's all of the individual with the narcissistic tendencies um, doing. Um, you're absolutely right that it takes both of these individuals and there's a lot of dysfunction in both of um, both of their behaviors that creates the cycle of the toxic relationship. I had to say this because <laughs> this is important. Because yeah. the people have to understand that if you are in a narcissistic relationship or a toxic relationship, you also need to take some responsibility yes. because you put yourself in that position. And I'm not trying to say that in a mean way because I'm saying it from my own personal experience. Right. You know, I, I had to do my own work. You know, there's a reason why I'm, I'm going to these types of people. Um, yes. And that is just something important for women and men to understand and realize it, it does take two. So I'm glad you said that. Um, all right. So let's go down to the, uh, the narcissistic uh, word, because that seems to be like a word everybody is using. And we talked about that a little bit because there's the, the spectrum, right? And yes. then you got the classic book narcissist. And then yep. you got that. Mm, it's got a little narcissistic tendencies. And then you got the ones in the middle. So could we talk about what is a narcissist? Are there different types? And, and then I'll ask more questions after that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Good question. So the term narcissist gets thrown around so frequently. I can't tell you how many times I sit in session and hear about the narcissistic ex. And that is um, so common. I do exactly like you said, that was beautiful, that it is on a spectrum. And so there is uh, Ross Rosenberg. Um, he wrote The Human Magnet Syndrome, and he talks about the spectrum of both codependency and of uh, narcissism. And I really recommend, you know, if this uh, episode resonates at all with, with your listeners, I recommend that book because it really breaks down how each party contributes to the dysfunction of the relationship. But the narcissist, to, to define that, a narcissist has this senseless, grandiose sense about them, um, often likes to be the center of attention, um, behaves in a way that the world revolves around them. They can do no wrong. What they say, what, you know, what they say goes. Um, it's a very inflated sense of being. Um, it's hard with a narcissist because they have a really hard time admitting fault in any way, because what is interesting about the narcissist is a, there's confusion and that the narcissist is not actually as confident as they present. And so they will present that they are the know-all be-all that they, you know, are often attractive, charismatic. They have this like air about them. But underneath that, there is a lot of insecurity and a lot of really low self-esteem. And so what we see manifesting with a narcissist is often overcompensation for those insecurities. And since there is such a deep-rooted sense of insecurity with the narcissist, they have to be doted on. They have to be praised. They have to be almost worshipped in a sense because that is what keeps them going. And the other side of that is that it's really difficult for them to admit fault because when you're already working with such a fragile sense of self, when you have to admit you've done something wrong or maybe you don't know something or you're not as good at something, um, that really threatens their state of being. Yes. So I want to say this. I've had women come to me on social media and just asking questions. I mean, I do a lot of women empowerment, you know, quotes and things like that. And I've had a woman come to me and say, you know, I, I, I feel like I, I may be the narcissist. And in my mind, I'm thinking the fact that you just questioned that you're not. <laughs> yes. yes, That is so well said. I talk with clients about that all the time. A true narcissist is not likely really going to take the time to assess their behaviors and how their behaviors are impacting those around them. That doesn't register in the same way. Um, and so, yeah, I hear that all the time as well. And, and you're right. Someone's willingness to assess, like, are my behaviors harming myself or others is likely not a true narcissist. Right. And now you said the word grandiose. And so when people think narcissist, they think this is like, hey, everybody, look at me. You know, I'm amazing. Yep. Can it be someone who's not like that? That's kind of like quiet, reserved, looks like a, an amazing person, amazing husband, amazing father or mother. Could it be someone like that? Yes, I love that. Um, so uh, there's multiple res like research studies, multiple articles talking about all different types of narcissism. The three that I most commonly talk about with my clients or when I'm in a setting like this would be the grandiose, which most people understand the grandiose narcissist. It's a center of attention, smart, attractive, charismatic, all of those things. But then these other two types of narcissism are not as openly talked about that I ensure that people are aware of. And one is the covert narcissist and one is the depressive narcissist, which often catches people off guard. So starting with the covert, that's exactly like you described. This could be um, the family man, basketball coach, always home for dinner, you know, has all these great qualities known in the community can still have a lot of narcissistic tendencies. Um, we actually see a lot of narcissism in the helping profession. So teaching, coaching, therapy, pastors. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times the narcissism shows up in that. And that is when we go back to this um, fragile sense of self, that is often where they're feeding the ego. 
because in all of those roles, they are often really esteemed and looked highly upon by the community. And so that is that is exactly where they're feeding it. And when we look a lot deeper, so in sessions, when we're kind of digging in, maybe I'm sitting there with the codependent partner and they're like, no, my, you know, my partner's so amazing and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, but let's dig in. Let's see like really where these narcissistic tendencies are coming up. And the other with the depressive is even more catches people off guard because we think how could, how could a depressed individual be a narcissist when in fact, often the depressed narcissist, they are still the center of their partner's world because their partner is doting on them and their depressive tendencies. They have, you know, they make it a point to take care of them, to put all of their needs aside so that they're okay. Um, and so we really do see narcissism come up just as commonly in a covert or depressive manner, which people um, can easily overlook. This is so important to talk about because automatically people think the, hey, look at me type person and not the other. And I didn't even know about the depressive type. That's crazy. And that even makes it even more difficult. So now we're going to talk about why do women, and we're saying women because most of my listeners are women. Why are women attracted to these types of people? And, you know, what is it about us that that get attracted to these people? Yes. Good question. And to your point, I am going to keep it geared towards women. And so this topic is very applicable to all genders, but I am, I'm going to gear it towards your question of women specifically. So the narcissistic man, if we're going to talk about the most common narcissistic type of that grandiose, and we'll, we'll kind of add in the covert as well. The depressive is less common. And so let's talk more about the grandiose and the covert. These individuals present very confidently. They are charismatic. They are charming. They are attractive. They are. And and when we say attractive, I really like to ensure people understand what you and I find attractive, physically attractive, may be two different things. But the way a man presents that makes him attractive, we're likely going to have similarities in that. And so that attraction is more about the presentation of that individual, maybe really well-groomed, well-dressed, just exudes a a sense of confidence. Um, When we think about it from an evolutionary perspective, women are drawn to the protector provider. Okay. We want a man who's going to keep us safe, who's going to put dinner on the table, who um, we don't have to worry about, um, you know, if, if they're going to meet those financial needs or if, someone were to confront us that they could keep us safe and defend us. You know, we we're attracted to those things truly from an evolutionary perspective. And so that is a big part of why women are attracted to the narcissistic man because of how they present. And so how our biological wiring feels like that is a good choice as a partner, as a mate, Uh, women are wired to seek out, um, men who would be valuable to their offspring. And so a man who presents in that fashion um, certainly is sending that message. But it's twofold because it's not just about how the man presents, but it's also about often the woman's wiring. And when we think about the programming that takes place, so beyond the biological wiring, but we think about the programming that starts in infancy with, with uh, our primary caregivers. So our interactions with our primary care- caregivers in infancy sets the foundation of how we do relationships, how we uh, understand relationships and what we believe relationships are. And so when you think about the difference of a, a caregiver being warm and nurturing and attentive versus a caregiver that is maybe more aloof or distant, or we have to work to get their attention and their approval, that sets the foundation for what that woman will look for in a romantic partner. And so if the programming that has taken place maybe with her father, it could be a mother, father, um, primary caretaker in general. And if that caretaker, if that woman had to work to obtain obtain that uh, acceptance or affection, that is exactly what she'll carry into adulthood. And so the narcissist is the perfect partner to carry out that programming because you really got to work to get their attention. Amen. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, this is exactly what we need to talk about because I I say this all the time. And when I speak when I speak to women and I and I talk about our our growing up and 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 how we were treated and and how you know our relationships with our mothers or our fathers, you know, people don't think about that. But that is so important. And I'm going to be very um, vulnerable and open about it. I mean, that's in my mind for me. I'm part of that response. I have to be responsible for the type of people that I bring into my space because of my wiring. You know, if I'm bringing someone like this, because when I see a pattern and I'm like, why is that happening all the time? <laughs> like something's up here and it can't, I can't be just blaming them. I'm part of that problem as well. And that's where, you know, for me, I had to go through my own healing, but that is such a huge thing that we do need to consider how we were. And I like how you said it, how we were wired, um, put into our minds. And for me, and again, I'm being open, I'm being open. Uh, for me, it's someone to take care of me. I need to look for someone to take care of me instead of thinking uh, I could take care of myself. You know, those are the words that were brought into my mind as a child. And, and it's also a cultural thing. And, you know, in the Latin um, community of a man, he's going to take care of you. He's the protector. And that's what you look for. But then you're just inviting, just like you said, narcissists. He, he opens in, you know, he's he he fits right into that. Yeah. Yeah, because he feeds off of that. Truly, he feeds off of and what often happens at the beginning of this relationship is the narcissist will often test the waters. They want to see, will this individual play into the role? And so they will do things. They There's a lot of doting and affection and, you know, putting the putting the other partner on a pedestal during this time that the narcissist will do this because they're like really feeling out will this individual play into what I'm looking for? And so looking for exactly like you described, often the narcissist is going to look for the woman who sends this message of, I want to, and I need to be taken care of. And he says, perfect. I got you. Yeah. And let's talk about that. So like the word love bombing, like I, yeah. I just learned that word last year and I'm like, oh my God. This is yes. like, this is exactly it. Can we talk about that? Yes. So love bombing. And that is exactly what is part of this initial part of a relationship with a narcissist. I also like to be really clear before we get too much further in, there's a difference between a pathological narcissist. Okay. And so the pathological narcissist, there is no empathy. There is malintent. I mean, this is usually a scary individual. That is not as commonly what we're dealing with more than with somebody with narcissistic tendencies. And that is why I recommend the human magnet syndrome um, to my clients to read so that they understand the spectrum of, you know, one to five on each side, that just because you're not dealing with a pathological narcissist doesn't mean you're not dealing still with a lot of these really damaging traits. But I just really like for, you know, people to be aware of that, that, um, Somebody can have a lot of narcissistic tendencies and still have a lot of good qualities, um, but we need to be aware of, of where the narcissism is showing up. So sorry, back to your point, though, with the love bombing, that's often what comes along with it is that at the beginning, and, and that was my point about putting the other individual on a pedestal, it, it is so much praise. It is uh, almost a, a an obsession, an infatuation that takes place of you are so perfect, you are so amazing. Because they're creating this role for the other individual. And if, and we'll just say the codependent as the other individual, that's very simplistic. That's not always the case, but let's just say the codependent being the other partner, they're often really seeking out acceptance, approval, affection, attention. And so when the narcissist is love bombing and providing all of this, the codependent really gets sucks in, sucked in and falls perfectly in into this role of the narcissist that they're, that they're designing for the relational pattern. Yeah. It's so good. They, they do it, so it, it really is because when we look at the needs of the narcissist and the codependent and um, really understanding the origins of that, a narcissist often develops from emotional neglect in childhood and a codependent often results from they were parentified early on. So they've been taking care of people since the get go. Um, they've been meeting the emotional needs of their parents, of siblings. They've been 
cleaning the house. They've been doing all these things without being asked forever because that is how they, that's how they survived. That's how they got by. Right. And so when the narcissist has had so much emotional deprivation, of course, they're going to seek out a partner who is trained, so to speak, to just fully take care of them. And so that is part of the that initial part of the relationship is the narcissist is is love bombing, but then also kind of like subtly testing areas of will the codependent be there to consistently meet their needs. Yes. Yes. (laughs) um, What about the word gaslight? I hear that a lot. Yes, that? that that's a great question. So gaslighting is a term that is used when an individual is attempting to get you to second guess your reality. Um, this is a very common behavior for a narcissist because especially when they are being felt like they're being put on the spot or they're being attacked or they're being called out for some of their behaviors, um, the gaslighting will take place by making the codependent really question their own reality and question what um, the validity of what they're expressing. So a common example that I use for this is that Let's say the narcissist has been developing maybe a, an inappropriate relationship with another individual. Um, so, you know, maybe they're getting really cozy with their coworker um, and there's more texting and all of a sudden they're hanging out more. And so then the codependent brings this up and says, hey, your interactions with that coworker is making me really uncomfortable. And, um, you know, could we talk about that? And we see the gaslighting when the narcissist then says, oh, my God, you are so jealous. What is wrong with you? I can't even we're only talking about work. I don't even know why you're bringing this up. And so then the codependent is left feeling often stupid, like, "Okay, what is wrong with me? Am I jealous? Do I have a problem? And that is what's meant by they start second guessing their reality because of what their valid expression of this made me uncomfortable then turns into what's wrong with you. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Um, that is uh, in very, it, it's like this, uh, this space of, you know, when you, when you said second guessing yourself, like doubt and confusion, and then like, how could, how dare I think that way? You know, it's like, and then it's, it is God manipulation to the, That's, the highest. And that is, that is the best way to describe gaslighting is it is a very insidious and well-developed form of manipulation. Okay. So Dr. Frederick, do they know, I mean, do they know they're doing this? Do even for like a split moment, do they, do they in their mind say, yeah, I'm doing this. Uh, I know that I'm, I mean, they may not say the word narcissism, narcissist, but do they in their mind know that they're doing this whole role play, this whole game? Do they know? So that would not be an easy yes or no, yes or no response because I do believe that some individuals know, but I also believe so these behaviors, whether from a narcissist or a codependent that are unhealthy and dysfunctional in a relationship are often developed from what what I call the adaptive child um, and to say I call that's not my term, but that it's a psychological term. And the adaptive child means that in childhood, we've all had to learn behaviors for survival. So we had to figure out how to get our needs met. We had to figure out how to get through childhood, whatever that meant. Often for a narcissist, if there was emotional neglect, if there was severe abuse, if there was um, maybe really high expectations, manipulation is often formed in childhood as a way of, of safety and protection. And so if that child learned that if I can kind of sweet, sweet talk mom, like I won't get punished as badly, or if I can kind of trick everyone into thinking I'm I'm okay, I'm acceptable, then maybe I'll get more attention. These behaviors are developed so early on. And when we think about it from that perspective, we can actually come at it with some empathy. Because when you think about this small child, this small, emotionally neglected child, who just wants to be approved of. They just want to be accepted. They just want to be esteemed. 
And that is where these behaviors start of, I've got to figure out a way to be okay with me. The hard part is then it's then carried into adulthood. And that's why we call it the adaptive child. And in session, we talk a lot about identifying the adaptive child and then talking about how those behaviors, that thought process is no longer serving you. What once kept you safe is now actually impeding upon healthy relationships. Um, And so I often encourage people to really, you know, that's part of the awareness is being aware of what were the behaviors we had to use in childhood that are no longer serving us. And so to go back to if the narcissist is aware, I genuinely believe there's a lot of times that they're not because they're just pulling from what they knew to survive. Yeah. Thank God. Okay. All right. So let's talk about this pattern. And we, you know, if, if a woman sees this pattern of inviting these types of people into their space, how do we break that? Yes. So the first thing is I really, I encourage people to be aware of the pattern of a dysfunctional relationship first and foremost, and what that looks like. What that looks like, the pattern of a dysfunctional relationship often starts with, there is this like euphoria, there's this high, this obsession with each other. And it's like, you can't get enough of each other. You can't get close enough. You can't spend enough time together. Often that takes place for a certain amount of time until a rupture takes place. The rupture can take place from either the narcissist or the codependent. Maybe the codependent is starting to get really needy or controlling at that point. Or maybe the narcissist is starting to pull some of those stunts and they're, you know, uh, not being as attentive. Maybe they're giving their attention to other people or whatever that rupture is. Something happens to rupture often results in a big volatile blowout. Um, This is very common with the codependent narcissist uh, dances. There's um, often the statement of like the, the fights or the conflict is is sometimes even foreign from what they're familiar with. Like it's just can get really big in this dynamic. And then that often results in them going different directions, maybe breaking up, um, whatever it is, but the breakup happens. That lasts for a short amount of time. They continue to obsess about each other, but you know, I'm mad at you, but I'm still kind of low-key obsessing about you. And then more obsessing, more obsessing, Until this plan is formulated of one of them is going to formulate a plan of how to get the other back. They're going to do it. They're going to get each other back. And the obsession starts again. And often when the obsession starts again, each time it's almost at an even more escalated place because it's like, oh, my God, I almost lost you. You know, the love of my life, I almost lost. And so it becomes even more obsessive and the pattern continues. So that is one of the first places are, are, can you resonate with that at all? Or is that anything your, your listeners have talked with you about? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 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 You know, that's exactly it. Like it's the, I mean, how many times have I heard the woman saying, and then I went back, not the first time, not the second time, not even the third, I mean, multiple times. Yep. Yes. Because they're drawn back to we will describe it as an addiction. And that is what often happens in these dynamics. And um, even thinking about it in terms of like intermittent reward systems. So if you think about it, like with a slot machine, uh, we'll keep putting in the coin and putting in the coin because we know there's going to be a payout. And so then when the payout comes, it's so amazing, which then prompts us next time to put in the coin and put in the coin. And so that's when we talk about how can we identify knowing that there's dysfunction, this is the, one of the first places I start before even digging into each individual's role of is the relationship in and of itself dysfunctional? <clears throat> right. And then when we dig into to the roles, it really is a, a, a lot about self-awareness. Like you were saying earlier, what is your role and what is your pattern in this? And then what are the behaviors that were Uh, letting go and that we kind of build this tolerance to. And um, that takes a lot of really honest self-reflection to recognize like, Oh, I don't, I don't think I would have been okay with that a few months ago. And now I'm letting it go and coming back for more. And so the self-reflection that goes on of what are these behaviors that we're growing a tolerance to, but also what are, what are our behaviors that we're like, that's really not congruent with my value system, but I continue to do it. 
Yeah. I mean, that that's, so I'm going to say that's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> it's painful <laughs> um, because you really have to look at yourself in the mirror naked and say, what, why am I bringing this? What am I, what am I, why am I bringing this into this space? What is it that I'm in my mind thinking? And I'll, I'll give you a great example. So, you know, instead of saying, um, like someone said to me, a colleague of mine said to me, you know, instead of saying to some, to, to the universe, I need, and I want someone to take care of me. How about you only need yourself and you have some self love for yourself and you're looking for a partner to complement that you're bringing a totally different person into that space. Not someone who's going to take over, not someone who's going to take care of you. It's just someone who's going to be by your side as you are this strong, independent woman. And that takes a lot of work. (laughs) That takes so much work because often this narcissistic codependency dance really, as you're describing, has this sense of like, you complete me. And it's like, oh, no, (laughs) that is like when you feel like someone is your other half, so to speak, and you need them to complete you, um, red flag, stop, time out, hold up, like, Let's first complete you before you even seek out, because there's a good chance if you feel whole and complete to begin with, you're not seeking out the individual who's trying to fill that void and you're not, it's that person becomes a lot less attractive to you. Dr. Federicks, preach, preach. (laughs) That is what I'm saying. Self-love is the answer. I've been saying that. I don't know how many times and people say, oh, you know, um, I do love myself. No, you truly just exactly what you said. You know, you truly need uh, to love yourself. You wouldn't be inviting these types of people, you know, if you did. So, yes, totally. The first part of that, like if we even take it a step back further, because when I sit with clients and talk about self-love and self-acceptance and self-esteem even, and it's like, what does that even mean? What does that even look like? And I think it's really important to, to reflect on, especially for a codependent individual, because they were often parentified so early on, and they were responsible for everyone else's needs, but their own. Often they don't have a sense of self. And so the question is, how can we expect them to esteem something that they don't have? And so if they don't even know who they are and what they stand for and what are their values and what's important to them and all of those things, we expecting them to love something that they don't even understand is really kind of setting them up for failure a lot of times. And so if we back the train all the way up to the first step of that is what are the steps that we can take to really understand self? And that is engaging in in, in reading and reflection and journaling and doing core value assessments and personality assessments and all of these things so that we can truly understand like who you are before we can expect you to love who you are. And it's hard ass work. So hard. <laughs> Truly, you know, so and, and it truly is a, a journey. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm talking for myself. I mean, that is, is so hard um, to really self-reflect and the journaling and being honest. And but I got to tell you, once you have that love for yourself and then you look back and you're like, oh, my God, like, wow. And like you said, the the complete uh, have someone complete me. I cringe. When I hear women say that or anybody say that, I'm like, hey, like, really? Come on. You don't need anyone to complete you. Um, So, okay. So let's talk about a little bit um, when we say let's do the work and you said some of the things like journaling and things like that, breaking the pattern, would that also involve therapy? Yes. So there's a few steps that I really think are valuable when somebody, so let's say someone is listening to this and they're like, oh my goodness, like I can relate to these codependent tendencies, the people pleasing perfectionism, putting everyone else in front of me. I can relate to seeking out these partners. That's the first step. It's the self-reflection and um, really being aware and honest with yourself about what's going on. So uh, codependent no more by Melody Beattie. Um, uh, facing love addiction um, by Pia Melody, 
Um, these are really good books that can help you engage in this self-reflection process of understanding what are these behaviors and where did they come from? And we're not assessing these behaviors from a place of judgment. We have to be so careful of that because you didn't wake up in your mid thirties or mid forties with all these dysfunctional behaviors. They were really started when you had no say in it. You didn't even know what was going on. And then they've just been reaffirmed throughout the lifetime. And so part of this is a, an honest self-reflection, but a self-reflection full of grace and full of patience and self-kindness that we didn't create this doesn't mean we can't change it. And so no, go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. Okay. I know. I'm just like, yes, preach, that preach. first part of just <laughs> self-reflection. Okay. So being aware of your patterns of behaviors, being aware of their patterns of behaviors and assessing where it came from. And then the next part is being aware of your role in it, which ties into this. And that's what we were talking about is that how are you contributing to the pattern? Um, it, even if that means you continue to let things go or you continue to enable the behaviors, you're still contributing. You're still part of the issue. And so a big part of what I talk to clients about is focusing on what is within your circle of control. We can't control what our partner is doing. We can't control what our kids are doing, our parents. We can't control that, but we can control our reaction. We can control the boundaries that we set. We can control what we are willing to tolerate. All of that is within our control. And we, we have to take ownership of that. Um, and then that is leading into like, so if you recognize you're in this dysfunctional relationship and that you continue to seek out these dysfunctional relationships, it's what I call the uncomfortable comfort zone. You are going to continue to do that because it's what you know, it's familiar. But once you have this self-awareness of what's going on, you truly owe it to yourself to stop the pattern. Part of stopping the pattern often comes along with with. with withdrawal symptoms. Um, I like to really give this warning to people because often I hear them say, I just can't shake this person. No matter what I do, I can't let him go. And so I talk a lot about, it's almost like the cold turkey. It's the no contact of you will have withdrawal symptoms, just like with any other addiction, but getting through that is where you get to the other side. And so then to your most recent point of seeking help, that's exactly where the help comes in. Uh, having a professional sit down with you and help you to identify what are these patterns of behaviors, um, how is it impacting you, and what you can do about it. You said so many amazing things. Okay, so the first one is the the uh, the grace and feeling guilty. And I, I mean, I I can vouch for that. Feeling yes. guilty that why did I do that? How could I have put myself in that position? Why didn't I learn the first time? You know. Right. Um, but I think that that is so important to give yourself some grace. And then the withdrawals, <laughs> that is, you know, you really have to do like absolutely no contact, like nothing, delete phone number, uh, you know, lose the number, uh, don't get rid of them on social media that, uh, you know, block them. It's yep. gotta be nothing. You yes. cannot have anything, no contact with them whatsoever. How are you going to heal? you know? Right. Okay. Right. And that is exactly right. If we think about it in terms of, um, if someone's trying to stop smoking or an alcoholic trying to cut alcohol, the one taste of alcohol, forget it. It's all back. So there's no reason. And it's the same psychological wiring that takes place. An addiction is an addiction. And so it's the same concept. If, if you're really going to break that addiction, you can't take the sips of alcohol. Right. Okay. So we talked a lot about what does this type of relationship look like, mainly with a man and a woman, and it's more of a, a of a loving, uh, you know, intimate relationship. What about with friends, and what about with family members? Yes, I love when I have these sessions of really, you know, the individuals really understanding maybe their codependent behaviors or how it's been taking place in a romantic relationship. And watching that aha moment of like, oh my God, this is not just with my partner. I'm allowing my boundaries to be violated with my parents, with my best friend, with my whoever. Um, that's exactly that's exactly right. Often the individual with these codependent behaviors are going to seek out 
individuals with the narcissistic tendencies in all relationships because it fits their programming. Explaining it as a template. This is what if we, you know, you're going to look at a formula that is what the same with our relational tendencies that what we seek out is just like that a formula. And so Yes, a lot of times we're going to recognize like, oh my gosh, we have these people all around us and we do. And the fact is, you're not going to cut everyone out of your life. And that is not the point of this. That is not at all uh, the agenda here. But what the point is, is that your feelings, your needs and your wants do matter and have to be prioritized. And so then a big part of the work that I do when we start to recognize these narcissistic individuals and these other roles is we have to do a lot of work on boundary setting. Mm -hmm. And not only boundary setting, but boundary holding, which is a whole hell of a lot harder than even the boundary setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is a lot of the work that we do is how are your boundaries being violated? What is coming up for you that you're allowing this to happen? Like, what is it that you're afraid of? Or what is it that you're seeking? Um, And are you actually getting any value out of your boundaries being violated because that's the only reason we allow them to be violated because we think like it feels safer or we're going to get more attention because of that. But when you reflect on the situations of the times you've allowed your boundaries to be violated, a lot of times you've still lost. You've still ended up feeling sad, dismissed, uh, unimportant, unvalued, all of those things. Yeah. Um, So I know that you've answered a lot of the questions, like I'm looking at what I was going to ask you. And we kind of talked about, you know, how to leave a narcissistic relationship and what that looked like. And then the ways to heal. I mean, we mentioned the self-reflection, the therapy. Um, But here's another thing. You know, again, we use that word so loosely. um, And you know, sometimes, you know, in my mind, I'm almost, I'm almost thinking, and I sometimes hear other women say this as well, you know, is this a narcissistic, toxic relationship or am I just overthinking this, Dr. Fedrick? Am I overthinking this? Yes. So often what I tell individuals in that situation is that if you're likely more codependent, you are going to seek out individuals with narcissistic behaviors, plain and simple and and to not is maybe not realistic. And so are you overthinking it? No. Probably your boundaries are being violated, probably you are being taken advantage of, probably you are being dismissed, but also you're allowing all of that to happen. And so if you choose to stay in that relationship, beautiful. Then get some help as a partner, get some help for yourself of how you can set boundaries. And that is okay to stay in that as long as, and let me be very clear, as long as there's not physical abuse, as long as there's not psychological abuse to the point of, you know, you are questioning your reality, you're highly depressed or anxious because of it. A big thing that I tell my clients, especially on this topic, you do you. If you want to be in that relationship, perfect. We're going to talk about it every week until we get it sorted out. But as soon as it's impacting your mental health, to a place that you are no longer feeling stable, you're no longer finding joy, you're you're recognizing depression, we can't justify the relationship any further. It is now an issue. And so that's a big way that I help people to gauge that. Like if, if it is truly impacting mental health, then regardless if that individual is a pathological narcissist or not, that's not a good relationship for you. But if somebody has narcissist tendencies, um, that's okay. Let's just figure out how to set boundaries and be assertive. Yeah. So for me, my stomach hurts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A little too close to home. (laughs) My stomach hurts. I'm like, I'm out of here. Okay. This is not working. It's impacting my body and my, and you know, you know, like I, it's, it's almost like when you listen to your, your inside and what your body is telling you. And when I don't listen to it, that's when the stomach starts hurting. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Time to go. All right. (laughs) um, That's such a good example though. And I just want to touch on that real quick because it's sometimes the, the chest gets tight. It's the lump in the throat. It's the stomach hurting. Don't ignore that. I mean, there is a chance that that's a trauma response and not actually intuition. There is a chance. So that's where your therapist comes in. So you can process through that. 
but then seek help and talk to your therapist about it. Don't ignore it because those physiological cues are there for a reason. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I will never not listen to that. (laughs) Um, All right. So what about protecting ourselves? So we go through this journey and continuous journey because it never ends of healing and, and working on ourselves. How can we protect ourselves moving forward to other relationships? Because, you know, even for myself and, and other women, we're scared. <laughs> now, now we're like, holy crap. I mean, can yeah. we even like then the minute that we, we find ourselves in this situation where we might be in a relationship, it's almost like, oh my God, okay, how do I, I'm, I'm afraid. So how do we go? How do we move forward with this? We protect ourselves by doing the individual work first of, of learning that self-respect and that, um, that self-confidence. And we learn how to set and hold boundaries prior to going into a new relationship. Because let me tell you something. If you go into a relationship with a narcissist and you are assertive and you are setting and holding your boundaries from that first conversation you don't have to worry about anything. That narcissist is going to weed themselves out for you. They, they're they heading out of there right away. Because like I described earlier, that is part of the early on assessment that they put you through of how compliant are you going to be with their demands. If from the get-go, you're not compliant, they're not interested. And that is a really simple way to protect yourself is by doing your own work, knowing who you are and knowing what you're willing to tolerate and holding that from the very beginning. I mean, that's a huge component of this. Yes. And I always say you have to do your work. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's always continuous. It's never an ending. It's, it's, it's this, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and you're, you're constantly trying to make sure yourself stronger and, and heal. Um, Dr. Fred Frederick, I'm so glad to have you here. This has been amazing. And I loved everything that you said. And I hope that this really gets through to a lot of the women who are listening to this and educate, you know, themselves about this and talk about the healing and talk about they they have some responsibility in this as well. And it's not saying you're at wrong and it's not your fault. But, you know, recognize that and then do the work so that you don't put yourself in these types of relationships again. So I just want to thank you so much. Um, But where can we find you? Um, My website is EvolveCounselingAZ.com. And then I'm also on Instagram at EvolveCounselingAZ. I'm pretty active on there. So I have to engage in, you know, conversation with people, whether DMs are on my um, posts. A lot of my posts are really designed uh, to create self-reflection. And so that's a big part of what I, I do on Instagram. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate you having me on. And I really appreciate how you and I connect and share a passion for this particular topic, especially. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening and watching. And until next time, bye. Bye.